This message is brought to you by Mill City Church in Lowell, Massachusetts. For more information, please visit millcitychurch.net. If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And while you're turning there, I'll share this with you to get us started this morning. Timothy Keller, who is longtime pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian Church uh, in New York City and is one of the uh, best apologists and uh, Christian intellectual preachers of our time. He refers to the many New Yorkers who have visited Redeemer Pres over the years who have been shocked to find out that their church would place so much of an emphasis on the Bible during their uh, service time. And not only that, but that the people in that service would give so much care and attention to listening and taking notes uh, in that sermon, in that Bible study. And he says this, that most would say that they know there are many great stories and sayings in the Bible, but today you can't take it literally. And what they mean is that the Bible is not entirely trustworthy because some parts, maybe many or most parts, are scientifically impossible, historically unreliable, and culturally regressive. Now, New York Christians aren't alone in their minority reverence for the Word of God. Just as New York skeptics don't hold a monopoly on questioning the veracity of objective truth found in the pages of the Bible. As a matter of fact, I bet if you would just think about it right now, you can name a friend, a family member, a classmate, a roommate, a professor, or a co-worker who would probably level the same charges at the Bible as these New York skeptics. And and if you're honest with yourself, and if I was honest with myself this morning, um, we would know that there have been times in our own lives when we have had those doubts or leveled some sort of charge towards the Word of God. More than likely this morning, we've all been there. Actually, if you even go from some churches, church to church this this, uh, in this day in the West, it is even trendy among self-professing Christian churches to either soften or contradict some of the harder teachings of the Bible in order to be more socially palatable. But brothers and sisters, here's the, stor- the stark truth this morning. There is no adherence to Orthodox Christianity divorced from belief in and adherence to God's word, the Bible. And to put it even more bluntly this morning, you cannot be a Christian. You cannot be a follower of Jesus while at the same time deny or suppress the truth of God's word. That's why, to fit into our message series this fall, that's why biblical truth is another core value of Mill City Church. It's why biblical truth is a fourth thread that helps weave us together as the body of Christ. Now, Timothy knew this tension very well. Sometimes we think that somehow the world has just always loved Jesus and always loved objective truth from the scriptures. And somehow around 1950 or 1980 in America, we just kind of got off track and we need to get back there. That's just not the truth. 
As a matter of fact, if you read the New Testament and understand that in each of these letters, the New Testament epistles are writing to specific churches in specific cities in the Greco-Roman first century world, you will find that many of the things that you and I are facing in 21st century America are things that the first century church were challenged by and had to deal with 2,000 years ago. And it's, it's very similar to the time, today's very similar to the time in Ephesus when Timothy, this young preacher, probably no more than 30, 35 years old, was put in charge of shepherding that flock, the church at Ephesus. And there were preachers, there were false teachers who were encircling that church and had even risen up among that church. And they believed things that were contrary to the scriptures. As a matter of fact, they were even taking some scriptures and twisting them for their own gain. And they were also making things more palatable to the itching ears of their listeners. And there were those at Ephesus who were so tempted to go that way because these guys were more flashy. They were more politically correct. They were more savvy than perhaps Paul was or Timothy was. And Paul challenges Timothy. And Paul challenges him to remember what was passed to him. He challenges him to stand firm on the faith. He challenges him to stand firm on the belief and the scriptures. And he sums it all up by saying this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. And these two verses are really some of the definitive, most foundational verses in all the Bible describing the essence of God's truth. And Paul sums it up by saying this, all scripture All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This morning, I believe that this passage of scripture has just as much application and penetration of our heart as it did for these first century listeners. And so this morning, as we think about the truth, the truth of God's word being a foundational value that we hold to be true here at Mill City, I want us to show us some truths this morning. So as believers at Mill City Church, number one, here's what we can learn from this passage. We submit to the authority of the Bible. As Christians, as Christ followers, we submit all of our lives All of our desires, all of our hopes, all of our dreams, all of the practices of our lives, we submit them to the authority of the Bible. Here's why. Because Paul says that all Scripture is breathed out by God. Perhaps your translation says all Scripture is God-breathed. Now the Greek word that Paul uses here does not occur in any other Greek writing, biblical or otherwise, up until this point in recorded history, before this letter, which leads some scholars to believe that Paul actually coined this term. He actually made up a word to point towards the divine nature of the Scriptures. And he says that all Scripture is god breathed it is inspired by God he doesn't say that just the scriptures that are most palatable to us he doesn't say that just the scriptures that seem good from a majority view in culture he says all scripture is inspired all scripture is God breathed now notice what he doesn't say and what he does say 
he doesn't point to any human author as being inspired. As if Peter, James, or John, or Paul walked around with some sort of magical halo around their head and that they just had some special insight that no one else had. There was nothing special about the New Testament writers. There's nothing special about these men. It's the words that are inspired. It's the scriptures themselves that are inspired. That's what Paul says. And so that leads us to the very reason why Christians say that the Bible is authoritative. The Bible is not authoritative today because some council at Constantinople in the 4th century declared that it was inspired. That's not why the Bible is authoritative. It's not authoritative because some denomination in the United States of America says that the Bible is authoritative. So everybody else should get in line behind the Bible. It's not authoritative because some group says that this is the way that all life should be. And in a power grab now institutes that upon everyone else. Instead, what we find out from the text is that the Bible is authoritative, the words of God are authoritative, and we submit our lives to the teachings of the Bible because the Bible, the words of Scripture, are God-breathed. They are God-inspired. It's ultimately because God is the Bible's origin. It's not because the Bible finds any of its origin in any teaching of man. As a matter of fact, the New Testament writers make at that point very plain and clear. They want to make sure that you're not believing this just because they said so. Peter, the very famous apostle of Jesus, the very famous disciple of Jesus who had some very great highs in his faith walk and some very lows of lows. And if you know anything from the scriptures, you know that. He writes this in 2 Peter 1 verse 20. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You see, even the New Testament writers never say that the Bible is simply a book written by man. They are pointing to the authority of God Himself. R.C. Sproul, who is one of the, the great preachers and theologians of our day, wisely says it this way, Scripture affirms that the Bible is the product of divine inspiration and that God's work extended through the human writers to each section and even each word of the original documents. The process of inspiration did not make the biblical writers automatons, for their books reveal differences of vocabulary, style, and other matters of variation between one human author and another. But inspiration did overcome any tendency they may have had to error with the result that the words they wrote were precisely what God, the divine author, intended us to have. This morning, brothers and sisters, the Bible is authoritative and we submit all of our lives under its authority because its words are the very words of God himself. Therefore, to reject the word of God is to reject God himself. Conversely, to obey the word of God is to obey 
God himself. So the first thing I want you to see from this text this morning is that we as Christians, we as people who are a part of this faith family, we are to submit to the authority of the Bible. Number two, I want you to see this. We trust the accuracy of the Bible. We trust the accuracy of the Bible. So if Paul is going to tell us that all Scripture is God-breathed, if all Scripture finds its origins in God, and we know that God is faithful and true, then we know that His Word is faithful and true. If God is trustworthy, and His Word comes from His mouth, then His words are also trustworthy and accurate. Therefore, we can trust what the Bible says. Even when what the Bible says seems to go against all the prevailing, all the prevailing knowledge and wisdom and the pervasive thoughts of the day. Do you remember Dr. Keller's New York skeptics? You know, the ones who would say the Bible is not entirely trustworthy because some parts, maybe even most parts, are scientifically impossible, historically unreliable, and culturally regressive. We don't have time to exhaust all three of those, so let's just talk about the historical reliability of the Bible. So the skeptics charge that the Bible is not historically trustworthy is not an unfamiliar one. It's very common. You could be talking to one of your friends and one of your friends may say, well, that's all great and fine for you, but you know, the Bible is just full of errors and it's full of contradictions. How many people have heard that before? Or, or perhaps you're in one of your classes and someone with a PhD after their name might level that charge and say that the Bible is just a faith-filled document, hope for the weary who need a crutch for life, but it just does not pass the test of historicity. And I want you to know that even when someone with a PhD after their name would level that charge, and even when it becomes very quite persuasive to your unassuming ear because of their education, I want you to know this. And I say this with all respect to the academic world. Just because someone is an expert in biology, mathematics, or literature does not make them an expert in everything. And it does not prohibit them from speaking confidently from their own biases. I want you to know this morning that whether you are 16 in this room or whether you are 60 in this room, that you don't need to shrink back in a state of spiritual inferiority because someone levels charges against the Bible. I assure you, the Bible does not need you nor me to defend it. God will do a good job on his own of defending himself. But I'm also thankful this morning that our God doesn't just leave us in the metaphorical weeds this morning with us walking through world going, boy, I sure hope this is right. I mean, there are a lot of smart people who are saying otherwise. I don't know how to counter this. Maybe the Bible isn't all that it says it is. I want you to know this morning that the undeniable fact this morning is that the charge that the Bible does not stand the test of historicity is simply false. It is simply false. And in the short moments that we have this morning, I want to give you at least a glimpse of why we can say this. Number one, let's say this. The Bible is historically reliable. The Bible is historically reliable. Now there are those 
who purport that the Bible is simply some faith book like any other spiritual book. And it was basically written by some men who just went and sat under a a, a plum tree. And they were having a great day and experience with God. So they just decided to write some things about God. And then pass on their regressive backwards thinking to the rest of mankind. The cynic and the skeptic might go down that road. Instead, what I want you to see this morning is the Bible is not really a book at all. The Bible is an anthology. The Bible Bible is a collection of books. As a matter of fact, it is 66 books within one anthology. And these books are a collection of historical, actual documents. And they are chronicling real events that happened among real people with real witnesses. And they were spread around the the countryside and the cities where real people who saw these events could have verified or denied the claims that they're purporting. Let me just give you a glimpse of this. Go with me to the book of Luke. Now Luke was a very well-educated man. And not only was he a well-educated man, he was a well-resourced man. And what we believe from history is that there was another well-resourced man named Theophilus. And Theophilus may have funded his research of the life of Jesus. And so when Luke, a doctor, a well-educated man, a well-researched, well-resourced man, sets out to write his biography, his account of everything that Jesus had done and said, here's what he says in his prologue in chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who, were from, the be- who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, And ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. The New Testament writers are not going out on a spiritual limb. They're not intellectually shallow. They're not just going on hunches or hearsay. Luke says that he consulted eyewitnesses. He says that he followed all things closely. He says that he wanted to write an orderly account, not a chaotic, loose account. He says that he wanted Theophilus to be certain about the things that have happened, not to be able to go out and just make some sort of uneducated guess. Remember Peter? Now Peter walked with Jesus. Peter talked with Jesus. Peter had great moments and he had low moments, as I said earlier. And he, wrote, he would go on to be a leader in the early church. And he wrote two different letters to the church at Rome. And in his second letter to the church at Rome, in chapter 1, just before the passage I read earlier, here's what Peter writes, beginning in verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. 
And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. These guys are writing about what they saw and what they heard and what they experienced. John does the exact same thing in 1 John. This is John who wrote the Gospel of John. This is John who is known as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And at the very beginning of his letter in 1 John, in his prologue, he says this, I want you to notice all of the sensory language he uses in this paragraph. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, the Bible is a collection of actual historical documents written by men who saw it and who heard it. And not only that, the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that there were at least 500 different witnesses who witnessed and saw the resurrected Jesus Christ after his resurrection. Now, people who want to say that that was just a mass hallucination, it takes more faith to believe that 500 people saw and hallucinated over the same thing over a 40-day period than it does to actually believe that Jesus is who he says he is and did what the scriptures say he did. Brothers and sisters, the Bible is historically reliable. Now, here's what I want you to also see. I want you to see how the Bible stands up historically against other works from antiquity. Now, when I say this, you may think this is bad news, but we don't have any of the original copies in our possession today. So we don't actually have, like you go to the, the National Archives in Washington, D.C., you will see the actual parchments of the Constitution of the United States and the Declaration of Independence that were written about 240 years ago, and it's the actual pieces of parchment that Thomas Jefferson and John Hancock and others touched with their own hands. Okay, we don't have those documents from Mark, Matthew, or Paul. And you may think, man, that's really bad news. Well, it's not bad news because there are many different works from antiquity and many different historical documents and works that we don't question their veracity at all. And we don't have the originals of those either. We have copies. It's very, it was very common practice in the first century world. And so here's what would happen. One of these men would write these letters and then that those churches would receive those letters and they would immediately start making copies. They didn't, have, uh, uh, they didn't have a Konica machine or an HP machine and so they literally had to sit down and write out every word. And so they would write copies. And then what they would do is they would dispense them and disperse them across the early churches so that other churches would have access to the writings of these apostles. And, and the process would just continue. Now here's where the good news comes in. I want you to think about some of the other historical standards that we have from antiquity. Take for example Caesar's Gallic Wars. 
Here's what we have of Caesar's work. We have approximately 10 manuscripts that can be dated, so 10 copies that can be dated to about 900 years after Caesar's life. 10 manuscripts after 900 years. Few people are questioning the veracity of Caesar. And then think about Aristotle's poetic. We have approximately five portions that are dated about 1,400 years after Aristotle's life. But few people are questioning the historicity of Aristotle. When you come to the New Testament, ladies and gentlemen, we have almost 6,000 Greek manuscripts containing all or part of the New Testament books. And the earliest copies we have can be dated as early as A.D. 125 or about 25 to 75 years after the events they are reporting in most cases. Why is this so crucial? Because what we have in the New Testament is we have documents that can be dated within one generation of Jesus' life. Which means that there were plenty of witnesses who could verify the events and plenty of opponents who could have denied them. You think about today, someone like a spiritual giant like Billy Graham, who is still alive. Billy Graham has had a fruitful ministry for the last 60 years in the United States of America. I want you to think for a moment if people started writing things about Billy Graham today that were just absolutely false. We would know it immediately because, number one, Billy Graham is still alive. Number two, we have 60 years of videotape of Billy Graham preaching and teaching and interacting with people. And not to mention the fact that there are hundreds and even thousands of people who know this man personally and can either verify or refute what is being written. This is what we have in the New Testament, brothers and sisters. What I want you to know this morning is we are on good ground. Leading New Testament scholar D.A. Carson says this, almost all text critics will acknowledge that 96, even 97% of the Greek New Testament is morally certain. It's just not in dispute. So textually speaking this morning, we as Christians stand on good ground. The Bible is historically reliable. But not only is it historically reliable, the Bible is also globally consistent. The Bible is globally consistent. Now I want you to think about other world faiths. And I'm saying this respectfully. I'm not here to denigrate any faith. But intellectually speaking and just doing a comparison and contrast. So many other faiths. When you look at, when you look at Islam. Their sacred text, the Quran. It is attributed to one man. Muhammad. Who had a big experience with Allah. And out of that experience, he sat down and wrote that work. One man. You think about Joseph Smith and the Church of Latter-day Saints and thinking about Mormons. You have one man who had an experience with God in the middle of the woods, in the middle of the, of the 19th century, and he sits down and writes the Book of Mormon. Here's what we have in the Bible. We see a globally consistent text that was written by 40 different authors. And these 40 different authors are of various educational and socioeconomic backgrounds. 40 different authors written in three different languages. Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. On three different continents. Europe, Asia, and Africa. Over a span of 1600 years. Now I want you to think about this. This is pre-Facebook. 
This is pre-World Wide Web. This is pre-Libraries of Congress. Three different continents, three different languages, 1,600 years, 40 different authors, but yet one. One singular overarching message. The fall and redemption of mankind for the glory of God. Ladies and gentlemen, that is a remarkable feat. It's a remarkable feat. The Bible is not only historically reliable, it's also globally consistent. And so this morning, you can submit to the authority of the Bible. And I want you to know this morning that despite the cynics, despite the skeptics, you can trust the accuracy, you can trust the reliability of the Bible. And so perhaps this morning that the better question to ask yourself is not, can I trust the Bible? Perhaps you should be asking yourself, will I trust the Bible? Will I trust it? But now let's go to a number three, a number three principle that I want you to see, because the Bible is more than a collection of historical documents simply for our mere intellectual investigation. The Bible is living and it is active with an intentional purpose in the life of the believer. And so thirdly, we as Christians, we as followers of Jesus now follow the application of the Bible. In other words, we actually do what the Bible says to do, and we do not do what the Bible says not to do. You see, the Bible is quite remarkable. It can stand the test of time. It can pass the test of historicity even more so than some of the other great works of antiquity that we have. But spiritually and supernaturally, the Bible function has a function And it actually works inside of us. And the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians that it performs its work in those who believe. Have you ever looked at another Christian's life and you look at the way they live their life and and you listen to how the word of God is just always on their tongue and, and they take it in its right context and they don't just know Bible verses, but they know what was going on and, and they can then apply it to their life and no matter whether they're here or here, they just simply know what to do in life. Have you met those people? I, I bet you have. And I I bet if you're a follower of Jesus that you've looked at those people and you've even thought longingly, man, I wish I had what you had. I wish I knew what you knew. I wish I could do what you do. Well, you know what? Those people aren't magical and supernatural any more than those New Testament writers were. It's just simply that not only have they gotten into the word repeatedly in their lives, They've allowed the word to get inside of them. And the word has changed them. And just like when we have a throbbing headache and we take Advil or we take Tylenol and within an hour or so that pain just subsides and goes away. Scientifically, medically, I don't understand how that happens. I don't understand how the Advil knows to target the temples and not the knee. I really don't. I'm sure that those of you with a medical background, you could explain it to me. But just as I don't, ex- I don't understand that, 
I don't understand exactly how the word of God performs its work inside of me. All I know is from a lifetime of digesting it and getting into it, it has gotten into me and it has changed my life. It's changed my worldview and it's changed my behavior. And that's what verse 17 tells us that the word does. The word word is not only God breathed. He also says that the word in verse 16 is profitable. It's profitable for your life. And he gives us five different reasons that it is. And and in these reasons, he's telling us what the word does inside of us. So let's look at this very quickly. As you read, as you study, as you meditate the word of God, here's what Paul says the word is going to do inside of you. Number one, the Bible instructs us. He says the Bible is profitable for teaching. In other words, the Bible is going to teach you and show you the reality of life. The Bible is going to teach you what is true about God, true about your world, and true about yourself. And so the Bible is going to instruct us. He's going to instruct us about who God is, instruct you in who you are. But number two, the Bible rebukes us. He says it's profitable not only for teaching, but also for reproof. Perhaps your translation says rebuking. Have you ever read the Bible and you said, whoa, (laughs) I didn't know that was in there. Thou shalt not. Oh, I did. (laughs) You've been there, right? The Bible has a way of exposing us. The Bible has a way of pointing out where we are not where we think we are. And then once we think we have arrived and once we think that we have gotten to some level of super maturity, then we start recognizing a lot of other areas that we're falling in because the Bible has a way of pointing out our sin. The Bible is going to rebuke us. So not only is it going to tell us and teach us about God and ourselves, the Bible is going to rebuke us and show us the ways in which we're not measuring up. But then here's the hope. God is not standing on some cloud in the sky, just looking down below to see how many people he can zap today and how many people he can rebuke today. The Bible doesn't just rebuke us. The Bible then also, thirdly, redirects us. It says it's useful for correction. Just as a loving parent not only disciplines your... You don't just discipline your child. You then point them in the behavior which they should have been behaving in in the first place. We don't want to just rebuke. We don't want to just punish. We want to redeem. We want to redirect. And so the Bible here in talking about the Bible also corrects us. It's it's meaning a straightening up. It's taking what is crooked and making straight again. Or to be made right again. The Bible is now going to show us don't walk in this way. But walk in this Godward direction instead. So the Bible instructs us, rebukes us, redirects us. Then he says the Bible trains us. He says that the Bible is profitable or useful for training in righteousness. Now when we are saved and we come to faith in Jesus and we repent of our sins. Yes, in in a judicial sense, God looks at your life and he declares you righteous, meaning that for the rest of your life, he will never hold your sin against you, but instead he will look at the perfect record of Jesus Christ and Jesus's righteousness will be on your account instead. But then we have this conundrum. 
Because while God declares us righteous in a judicial sense, we still know on any given day there is a whole number of residual unrighteousness that is very much present in our lives, right? And so the whole process now of being a Christian is that although God declares us righteous, now we have this lifetime in which my declaration becomes ever increasing manifested in my life. And so my external life is conforming more and more to what the declaration of my life is. Do you follow that? And so what the word does is as we're walking through our lives and we're reading it continually and we're studying it continually, the supernatural element of the word gets inside of us and it's conforming us more and more like Jesus and training us more and more to walk in righteousness. Lastly, the Bible equips us. So all of this, the instruction, the rebuking, the redirection, and the training All of that ultimately, he says, is so that the man or the woman of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. If you are here today and you're looking at your Christian life and you're just wondering why you don't feel equipped or sense that you're equipped to tackle life's problems or to be on mission the way God has commanded us to be on mission Could it be that there is not a constant, steady diet of God's word in your life? Because Paul says that one of the profitable purposes, intentional purposes of the Bible, of God's truth, is that as you get in it, it will get in you, and it will radically change your life and equip you for every good work that you face in this life. So this morning, brothers and sisters, I want you to know That we are to submit to the authority of the Bible. And that's what we do here at Mill City Church. Is we submit to his authority. And two, you can trust the accuracy of the Bible. Because it's historically reliable and globally consistent. And thirdly, you are to walk in and follow an application of the Bible in your life. That's a core value here at Mill City. Now, I want to ask you three questions in response this morning. And this is going to start going into where we see this playing out in our faith family as we conclude. Let me ask you this first big picture question. Will you center your life upon the Bible with us? That's the goal of our faith family. It's to center all of our life and our mission on the word of God. And so will you do that with us? We want you to. Boy, we pray that you do. And three ways that I want to ask you to do this specifically in your life. Number one, will you commit to read the Bible personally? Will you commit to read the Bible personally? It is an expectation of Christians, of Christ followers, that you would read this word consistently, personally, in your own lives. Joshua 1.8 says this in the Old Testament, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. And so the Bible talks about the personal aspect of filling your life and meditating on God's word. 
You know, there are good reading plans that are available. We have some of those here at our church. I think there's one or two on our website that you could consult. Uh, there are great resources, at uh, whether it's Desiring God on John Piper's ministry or, or whether it's Ligonier Ministries with R.C. Sproul, uh, David Platt uh, on Radical.net. There are many different places where you can find good reading plans. I have found in my own life that when I have a reading plan that I'm going through, I am more faithful and consistent in reading God's Word. If I'm just leaving it as into whatever is going to come to mind today, it's when I'm really lackadaisical in my time with God. And so I want to encourage you today, find a Bible reading plan and commit to it and read the Bible personally. If we can help you in this, all you have to do is ask and we would be glad to point you in those directions. Number two, will you commit to read the Bible corporately? Will you commit to read the Bible corporately? Not only does the Bible give us a blueprint an instruction for reading the Bible personally, but you also see glimpses of reading the Bible corporately with other believers. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, which is one of the definitive passages that talks about the early practices of the first century church, the Bible says this, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. The apostles' teaching is the scriptures. The apostles' teaching is the scriptures. So here at Mill City, we have community groups. We have accountability groups where you may, even if you're not a part of a community group on Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday night where we're reading the Bible and fellowshipping together and breaking bread together, then link yourself up with another or two or three other Christians where you can read the Bible just in a setting with other people. So will you commit to read the Bible corporately? And lastly, Will you commit to read the Bible missionally? Here's what I believe. I believe that in our faith family today, in this room today, I believe there are a lot of Christians who are reading the Bible personally. And I believe that there are a lot of us reading the Bible corporately because we have more people involved in community groups this fall than we ever have. But I'm not sure how many people are reading the Bible missionally. It's not simply about sharing your faith and giving someone a tract. What would it be like to open the scriptures up and actually read the Bible with an unbelieving friend or an unbelieving roommate or an unbelieving family member and just walk through the Gospel of John or another one of Jesus' Gospels so that they can see Jesus in his context, in his own words and in his life? We see this in the early church. In Acts chapter 8, we see the account of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And for the sake of time, I won't read the entire account, but the Spirit leads him over to this Ethiopian eunuch. And he finds this eunuch reading the Bible. And listen to this exchange beginning in verse 30. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And then they go and unpack the scriptures together. And the Ethiopian eunuch comes to faith and is baptized right there on the spot. Here's what I see in the contemporary church today. I see a lot of people who are willing to post on Facebook attacks against many unbelievers in all the lost world. I see many Christians who are willing to maybe put a tract on someone's windshield or pass something out just in the dead of night so that it doesn't get much attention. 
But I see very few Christians today who are willing to go over to their Ethiopian eunuchs and saying, do you even understand what you're reading? Can I help you understand God's word? Could we read this together? So I want to ask you, church, this morning, not only will you read the Bible personally, not only will you do it corporately, but will you do it missionally and invite someone in to the word of God? We love God's word here because it's literally our life. And this morning I've shared the veracity of the word, I've shared the instruction of the word, and I've even given you three specific points of application where you can ask yourself some questions this morning. And so as we close this morning, I'm wondering if you'll respond. Would you allow God to search your heart this morning and to see where you need redirection in your own life? You could be listening today and saying, I don't want to be a skeptic anymore. I don't want to be an unbeliever anymore. I don't want to be a lost person anymore. I want to repent of my sins and place faith in Jesus. Would you reach out to me or another trusted leader in our church today and share with them that truth? We'd love to walk alongside of you. We're going to sing in response this morning. And as we sing out loud, I pray that you would be looking introspectively at your heart and allowing God to move us and push us out in more faithful service to him and his word today. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these people. And thank you today that your word has intersected with your people in a corporate sense. And we pray now, Holy Spirit, that you will illuminate in our hearts sin, illuminate in our hearts where we're not walking faithfully with you, redirect us towards you, Father, I pray today that you would, you would commission us out of here today to be more wholehearted in our commitment to reading your word personally, to reading it corporately with fellow believers, and to read it missionally with those who don't know you. Father, give us the grace today to help others understand. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.